I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite our history and heritage professionals to get seething. The podcast where our historians sat the past with 10,000 volts of pure, unadulterated reason. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend and overlooked genius in his own right, Kyle Glover. Overlooked for now. Evening, everyone. And this week, dear ages, we have a rare journey back to the Victorian age, an age of pioneers where the world truly changed. To take us on this lightning tour of 19th century science, we are joined today by Professor of History at Aberystwyth University and author of Nikola Tesla and the Electrical Future, Ewan Morris. Ewan, welcome to History Rage. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So thanks for inviting me on. You're welcome. Feeling angry? I'm getting there. Getting there. We're, we can help. Now, we're, we're a newcomer to both you and Victorian science. Uh, you came to us as your publicist contacted us to suggest that you we get you on, which did wonders for our ego, I can tell you. Mm. So thank you to everyone at Ruth Killick Publicity. But to kick us off, would you give us a beginner's guide to, to you and how you came to be in the field that you're in? Ooh, let's see. A beginner's guide to me. Well, I'm Ewan Rees-Morris, and as you said, I'm a professor of history at Aberystwyth, Aberystwyth University. Actually, born and bred in Aberystwyth a long time ago as well. I'm a historian of science, and more specifically, I'm a historian, really, of Victorian science. I'm fascinated in all sorts of ways by the relationship between science and culture. How did science come to be the kind of dominant force it is in, in, in modern culture. I suppose in a sense there's had a slightly strange journey to being a historian, since that yeah. wasn't really part of the original game plan at all. When I went to university, I went to university to study phys- physics. I was going to be the next Einstein. At least that was the, <laughs> that was the grand plan at the age of 18. Yeah. But whilst I was at university, I started to find myself thinking more about 
questions to do with, well, what is science rather than doing science? Oh, that's deep. And I was lucky, lucky enough to be at a university that had a history and philosophy of science department. So I started to take history and philosophy of science lectures. And it quite quickly at that stage became clear to me that the plan to be the next Einstein was going to have to be put on put on one side, since that was clearly what I wanted to do. So I went on to do my PhD in yeah. HPS, looking at, in fact, a Welsh man of science, a guy called William Robert Grove, inventor of the fuel cell, amongst other things. And then from that point on was you know, carried on doing research on the history of Victorian science, trying to understand what science meant to the Victorians. Published my first book, Frankenstein's mm-hmm. Children, in 1998. And since then, I've really, I suppose, been kind of carrying on in the same kind of vein, trying to understand specifically, I suppose, what, what science meant to the Victorians. But, I mean, by extension, what science means to us. And it's during the Victorian age that, certainly in terms of its institutions, you know, something like modern science really mm. emerges, you know, with universities, with laboratories, you know, with that kind, you know, with those kinds of cultural institutions. Yeah, the same sort of thing that we'll see today. Yes, exactly. So, Just I mean, nicer buildings. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes not, it must be said. <laughs> so I want to understand... How it, how it came about that science came to be in that kind of dominant cultural position, you know, kind of dominant cultural position that in most corners of the globe, it still, it still has today. I mean, that's what I'm, that's what I'm really interested in doing. Okay, well, so if we're going to talk about science dominating culture, then that uh, does lead us neatly in to the rage that you've come here to rant about today. So, Please, Ewan, with all the emotion that you feel it warrants, would you please tell our learned community out there what you wish people would just stop believing? Nikola Tesla, the forgotten genius. Nikola Tesla, the forgotten bloody genius who wanted to give the world free energy and was banished from history for his temerity. <laughs> right, I that's mean, me told, isn't it? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, forgotten genius. The man must be the best known forgotten genius in the whole of history. <laughs> I mean, let's just kind of recap this. Looking back just over the last well, few years, mm-hmm. not one, but two Hollywood blockbusters. He's been on an episode of Doctor Who. He turned up at regular intervals on you know, the American TV sitcom The Big Bang Theory, which despite that, I yeah. should say, is, was and is one of my favourite sitcoms. Yeah. The poor man Sheldon Cooper. This is not a forgotten man in any way, shape, or form. 
he's had more biographies written about him than I've had hot dinners, and I should know because I wrote one of them. <laughs> I have just read it as well. Thoroughly, thoroughly recommended. <laughs> I mean, and really, I mean, I mean, kicking off from the you know, from the first of those biographies published pretty much straight after his after his death, written by prize winning American journalist John O'Neill, prodigal genius forsooth. And you know, from then, you know, it's all carried on in the same vein. You know, this great man, forgotten by history, forgotten so thoroughly that he needs to be kind of constantly thrown at us. Tesla the car wasn't called Tesla by accident. Tesla the car mm. was, was called Tesla precisely to you know, invoke the memory of this supposedly forgotten genius and it's pretty clear that the owner of tesla and the current unfortunately owner of twitter sees himself as something of a latter day nikola tesla i think tesla's mm. the no, tesla's the favorite inventor of silicon valley tech bros he is by no stretch of the imagine of the imagination forgotten and they think of him in that way because they kind of think you know, they want to be like that guy. They want to be that iconoclastic, rule-breaking, gonna-change-the-world single-handedly kind of guy. So yeah, that's not the real Tesla. That's not the real <laughs> Tesla, I want to say, over think, and over and over again. I think, we, I think we've done a lovely number there on, the, on dealing with the overlooked part of that. Yeah. You know, I know we're going to come to this in a little bit more detail a little on, but the, you know, genius? No. Very, very clever self-promoter. Um, Yes, in ah. all sorts of ways. A really good electrical engineer. I mean, yeah. a, a really clever guy with his hands. But also somebody who was very, very good at selling a particular image of himself. And in a lot of ways, you know, that kind of image of the forgotten genius, the man out of time, the iconoclast, the rule breaker, I mean, all of those sexy things are part of a very carefully calculated image that Nikola Tesla, with much assistance from the American press during the 1890s constructed around himself. It's a very, very appealing, seductive image of the inventor, which is why I think it's it's still such a powerful one today. Today. Okay, right then. Well, let's let's kick off the reality then. So, Coyle? Yeah. So my knowledge of Tesla can be summed up by reciting basically the plot of the film The Prestige and knowing the brand of cars are named after him. So can you tell us a bit about his background and how he became an inventor? Um, I mean, Tesla is actually, I mean, I've been nasty. He, 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 he is and was a fascinating figure. Mm. But I think, I mean, far from being kind of a man out of time, I think he's a, he, I mean, he was a man in, who in so many ways kind of summed up what it was or what it potentially could be to be an inventor at the end of the 19th century. Tesla was born on the 9th of July, 1856. 
at the stroke of midnight, apparently, and during the middle of a thunderstorm, or at least so Tesla tells us. You'll have gathered, I guess, that I tend to think that everything that Tesla says about himself needs to be mm. taken with a, with, with a certain pinch of salt. That's a tad. That's a tad cinematic, isn't it? A man who's famous for well, well, yes. I mean, yeah, you know, you know, the notion that yeah, you know, the, the man who was going to be, by his own estimation, the world's greatest electric electrician, was mm. born during a thunderstorm is possibly, just possibly, a little suspicious. Mm. Um, anyway, he's born anyway. on the ninth of July, eighteen fifty-six. He's born. He was born in what is now Croatia, which at that time was really pretty much on the border between the Austrian and the Ottoman empires. Uh, so whilst born in Austria, now, now Croatia, Te- Croatia, Tesla was actually of Serb descent. His father was actually a, a priest in the Serbian Orthodox Church. So brought up in a small village, you know, very much kind of on the borders, kind of back and beyond in several respects. But still, you know, I mean, this, I mean, this is the 1850s. This is, in so many ways, the kind of electrical century, if you, if you like. Uh, the Austrian Empire is trying to modernise, trying to industrialise. So, you know, there are opportunities there for a bright young guy on the make. And Tesla was certainly a, a bright young guy on the make. His father obviously wanted him to go into the church. Tesla manages to persuade him. Otherwise, he goes to a technical school drops out. He goes to university, drops out. He's fascinated by electricity. He's he's fascinated by electrical machinery. And in due course, he finds himself in Budapest. And he's in Budapest working for the Budapest Central Telegraph office. The telegraph is in so many ways a kind of big technology of the 19th century, a new form of rapid communication so telegraphs, telephones, I mean, he's, he's, he's getting his hands dirty in Budapest, you know, learning hands-on how these sorts of things really work. From Budapest, he gravitates to Paris. Why does he go to Paris? He goes to Paris to work for the Société Electrique Edison. Edison, over the United States, you know, is now setting up his electrical companies selling electrical electrical power in the United States and he's he's syndicating so to speak. He's he's setting up Edison companies in in different European in different European countries to try and dominate you know the kind of growing market for electrical power in those countries. And Tesla goes to Paris to work for the Société Electrique Edison. He's pretty good at what he does. And eventually in 1884, he sails across the Atlantic to New York, still to work for Edison, but at kind of Edison Central now, so to speak. He doesn't last very long as an Edison employee, mainly because Tesla had a very high opinion of himself, and he was upset that Edison didn't, didn't immediately adopt Tesla's own ideas as to how things should be done, how technologies should be adopted. So he set out basically to do it on his own. He was going to make himself another Edison, so to speak. He had some tough years, 
even spent some time digging ditches at some stage of the proceedings. And then he invented his polyphase motor. This is a motor that works directly from alternating current generators. Yeah. That was quite a handy thing to invent at the end of the, of the 1880s, since there is a battle raging, the battle of the systems, the current wars, as some historians call it, between promoters of direct current electrical technology, on the one hand, a.k.a. Thomas Alva Edison, and promoters mm -hmm. of alternating current electrical power systems. On the other hand, primarily George Westinghouse. Westinghouse finds out about Tesla's patent, about his invention, and he buys it. He gets Tesla to work for him, improving the polyphase motor and making it into something that was actually a practical technology. Tesla, again, doesn't last very long as a as a Westinghouse employee. He's clearly not very mm. good at being at being an employee. He he ha he has a very firm view as to how things should be done. He gets his big break in the early 1890s. He gives a series of lectures in the United States, in London, in Paris, and they're just fabulous performances. Imagine this man striding onto the stage. He's holding electric lights in his hands, in his bare hands. He's holding lights. He's waving around kind of long glass tubes that are that are glowing with bright light. Yeah, he's putting himself right to the middle of electrical circuitry. He's trying to sell the idea of wireless power. So, I mean, he isn't attached to anything. There are no wires mm -hmm. coming out of him. He's, you know, he's holding the, these lights in, in, his, in his bare hands. Now, you would think that he should be burnt to a crisp, yeah. but he isn't because he's invented a way of generating electricity uh, what we now call the Tesla coil, in fact, that essentially produces electricity of very, very, very high voltage, but very, very, very high frequency. And when you produce electricity like that, it doesn't travel through the things that it travels through. So in Tesla's case, he's holding the bulbs. The electricity isn't traveling through Tesla. It's traveling along Tesla's surface. So he doesn't get fried to a crisp. So, so he can... So he can do this stuff. And this makes Tesla famous. You know, yeah. When he sailed from New York to England to give the lectures, give a lecture at the Institution of Electrical Engineers, nobody really knew who Tesla was. When he sails back to New York, it's reported in the newspapers that Tesla has returned. And he spends the rest of the 1890s, really, assiduously cultivating the press, this kind of image as the outsider, you know, the number of newspaper articles I've read that start off something along the lines of, we were so lucky that the reclusive Mr. Tesla invited us into his laboratory to see his latest invention. So not really very reclusive. Staying at the Astoria Hotel, dining at the Waldorf. You know, he's living the life that he thinks an inventor should live. And he's trying to sell this idea of wireless power. Eventually, he gets J.P. Morgan to give him $150,000. And he builds yeah. this huge tower at Wardenclyffe on Long Island outside New York. And the idea is to use that tower to generate vast quantities of electricity. 
that he then thinks he can pump, literally pump through the earth so that anywhere, anywhere else on the surface of the earth that has a similar tower can kind of draw the energy in and then distribute it wirelessly to everyone, everyone who wants to buy it, essentially. You know, that's the dream of wireless energy. It doesn't work. Tesla goes bust. Wardenclyffe Tower is torn down to, well, to pay his, pay his hotel bill, essentially. That's <laughs> why the tower is torn down. And he spends the rest of his life, I mean, he, he dies in 1943, so he's still got a, a way to go, so to speak, living in a rather less fancy hotel than the Astoria, but still desperately trying to sell you know, this idea of the, kind of the new electrical future that he'd single-handedly invented or would invent if somebody just gave him the cash to do it. And he's still kind of assiduous at courting the press almost annually on Tesla's birthday. Now, you'd find stories in New, in New York papers you know, about the great Mr. Tesla, another interview, you know, more talk about wireless, wireless power, more talk about doomsday weapons that will bring about an end to all wars. Tesla will make men as gods. That's the kind of headline you get. Yeah, that's the kind of man that Tesla was. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thank you. So, so how does a man make it as a Victorian scientist and a pioneer? Because you can't just make a thing and then thing equal wealth. What do you need to make it in that world? What is the process of becoming wealthy as a Victorian inventor? A lot of it, I think, is actually about showmanship. A lot of it is actually about spectacle. Tesla wasn't a fool when he got onto you know, lecture theatre stages, you know, holding those holding those light bulbs, so to speak, in, in his bare hand. He knew that he was making a spectacle of himself, and he knew that making a spectacle of himself was a key element in promoting himself as 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 a successful inventor and he's by no means the first victorian invent, inventor to you know to you know, to try out that strategy i mean throughout the victorian period there's a long history of technological spectacle i mentioned the telegraph earlier you know the great i think in so many ways technology mm. of the of the victorian era the electromagnetic telegraph was first patented in Britain in 1837 by Charles Wheatstone and William Fothergill Cook. Yeah, so they've got their patent. Well, whoop-de-doo. 
what do you do yeah. with your patent? You have to persuade people that you have an invention that's worth investing in. So yes, indeed, one of the first things that Wheatstone and Cook do with the Telegraph is put it on show. And one of the reasons they put it on show is they want to bring in potential investors. In their case, in particular, they're wooing railway money. It's the beginning of the 1840s. Isambard Kingdom Brunel is building what's going to be the Great Western Railway, going out of Paddington, you know, off towards off towards Bristol. Uh, Stevenson is is building the is, is building railways towards the north. They they want those people's cash, and the first step of getting their cash because as well as spectacle, cash is the other is the other essential ingredient in making more cash. So they're assiduously courting people like that. They're doing that by by by, by showing off. By inviting people to see the telegraph, look what look what you can do. You can send messages from one place to another in an instant. And remember, that's that's revolutionary. Yeah, circa eighteen forty. Usually, if you want to take a message from say one end of London to another, then you give a piece of paper to somebody, and that somebody walks, or gets on a horse, or gets on a coach. But the message arrives at the same time as a human. Once you've got a telegraph, yeah. the message goes from A to B pretty much like that. But they have to persuade people that there's a use for it. And actually, that's why they're, they're, they're talking to the railway guys, because the one obvious use is as a, as a signaling technology. So showmanship is a key element in kind of making yourself, being a successful showman. Yeah, showing your investors that there's something there, that there's something that they can, you know, that, that, you know, that they can make make money out of. You know, make... If I'm just coming as well, because one of the fascinating things that I found when when I read your book is that that's almost done in the other way as well, because you can you, you can demonstrate that what your competition is doing is is awful, and I I highlight the if I'm getting this right, but didn't Edison declare that? The alternating current was so dangerous, he recommended Tesla's work for the electric chair. Not precisely Tesla's work, but yes, absolutely. He he re- he recommended alternating current for the electric chair. I mean, this it really is a fascinating story. It's a wonderful example you know, of inventor skullduggery at the <laughs> yeah. at the end of of the nineteenth century. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's this there's this big fight going on towards the end of the 1880s. Edison has his direct current systems. Westinghouse is trying to push for alternating current. And in a certain sense, the triumph of AC was kind of inevitable. DC systems work on relatively low voltages. And Mm -hmm. with a DC system, you can only really distribute electricity over a relatively small area, so it's so it's a kind of power. I'm slightly exaggerating, but it's kind of a, a kind of power station on every city block kind of scenario. With AC, yeah. you 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 send your electricity at a, at a far higher voltage, but you can send it at a far 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 greater distances. So you can have big power stations 
outside cities or in central places in the cities and you know, distribute the electricity all over the place. Yeah. So that, that's the battle of the systems between, between these two ways of, of distributing electricity. Now, Tesla's contribution was that, was that polyphase motor. You know, that's a really important thing because it means that you can use AC to run machinery, which had previously been a problem. So, yeah, I mean, Edison is, is fighting this war against this encroaching AC system that's kind of poaching on his territory. There have been discussions in the United States in particular about the use of electricity as a kind of civilized, scientific means of execution. Edison, interestingly, before the Battle of the Systems broke out, is on the record as saying that he opposed that he opposed the use of electricity as a means of execution. But yes, suddenly, lo and behold, no, he is in favour of using electricity as a means of execution, <laughs> if and only if it's AC, because AC is high voltage, it's dangerous, it's the stuff that really can kill. Yeah, it's not the sort of stuff you want in your home. Exactly. I mean, that's 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 the that's the that's the whole point. I mean, he even suggests that the term that should be used to describe the process of execution should be to Westinghouse them. You know, really <laughs> making the point that you know, this is <laughs> that this is what's going on. So yeah, in due course, in 1890, New York introduces what we now call electrocution. As a as a means of execution, a kind of nice civilized scientific. Yeah. The first victim is a gentleman by the name of William Kemmler, who had murdered his wife, and the execution when it took place demonstrated very clearly just how uncivilized and unscientific the whole process was. It took several efforts. They literally fried the poor guy to death. But by then, of course, His New York hair was, caught fire, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, by this, yeah, New York was committed to this new technology, and and there it was. But yes, I mean, it was part of Edison's campaign to try and yeah, try and turn try and turn Westinghouse's system into the wrong kind of spectrum, yeah. if you like. But in that respect, it doesn't work. Westinghouse, a few years later, gets the contract, for example, to electrify. Niagara Falls, you know, to you know, to build the the the, the dynamos that are going to generate electricity from Niagara Falls. Um, a little later, Westinghouse, in, again in competition with Edison, gets the gets the contract to provide electricity for the Columbian Exposition, the huge, huge scientific technological exhibition that took place in Chicago in 1893. You know, to celebrate. Columbus's discovery of of America, hence the Columbian Exposition. Mm-hmm. And again, it's a huge, huge spectacle. And it provides America and it provides the world with this, you know, with, well, with this spectacle of an electrical future, a, spe- a spectacle of a future yeah. that's going to be dominated by electricity. And that electricity is being supplied by Westinghouse. Mind you, Edison gets his own back. Um, you know, that there's there is, amongst all sorts of other buildings, there's an electrical building at the Columbian Exposition. Yeah, that's where the electrical yeah. ex- exhibits are. And it's dominated by this kind of huge tower covered with electric lights, which is, of course, the Edison 
exhibit. So you know, yeah. the electricity might be being provided by Westinghouse, but you know, Edison's name is there literally in big lights as well. Well, that that very neatly leads me into the next point, because Tesla prefers alternating current, Westinghouse's current, and alternating current is now pretty much powering everything the civilized world does, and Edison's direct current isn't. How come Edison is absolutely world famous? And I needed to read your book to know about Westinghouse. That's a very good question. And I think the story around this is a very, very complex story. First of all, it has a great deal to do with the battle of the systems and the way that that's kind of traditionally been portrayed. In particular, there's this kind of myth of kind of Edison versus Tesla. In particular, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that Edison is the bad guy who's kind of in hock to powerful corporate interests, and that Tesla is the kind of poor guy who had this great idea and was coming I mean, being stolen by by others. The reality is that, I mean, basically, once he'd seen the writing on the wall, Edison, as a matter of fact, had abandoned DC you know, relatively quickly. I mean, by the 1890s, Edison was doing alternating current as well. And he was already in the position you know, of, you know, of, of having a powerful electrical company, so to speak, at, at his disposal. So yeah. Edison's companies remained to a large extent dominant, you know, even after they'd been obliged to switch to, to AC. And of course, I mean, Edison himself was extremely good at self-promotion. I might even say that Tesla learned from Edison just how important self-promotion was. I mean, even though Tesla kind of portrayed a very, very different image from himself to the image that Edison gave. I mean, Edison portrayed himself to the American public as the kind of quintessentially American, tough-minded, rugged, self-made Man, yeah, the kind of the kind of guy that every American man wants to be, essentially. Okay. And again, I mean, that was a very powerful image at the at the end of the nineteenth century. Okay, so to just return to Tesla himself, how does he go from being a Victorian engineer like many others to today, where he's either unknown or the central star of various comic books, films, alternative fiction? Uh, even conspiracy theories. How do we go from one to the other? It's to do with that business of self-fashioning, of mm. self-making and, and self-promoting, I think. Tesla throughout the 1890s, is he is really, really carefully promoting this particular idea of himself. It helps that he's a foreigner. He's an outsider. He's exotic. And he's portrayed as exotic very often in the American press. They sometimes get the exoticism wrong. I mean, it's occasionally described as being Polish or Hungarian or whatever, as opposed to mm. Serbian. But he's, yeah, he's an outsider and he plays with that image very carefully. I mean, he's a recluse, he says. You know, the man dines at the Waldorf Astoria. But no, officially, he's a recluse. He shuts himself away. He's this kind of reclusive, disinterested man who's only interested in pursuing his dream of an electrical future that only he 
can do it. I mean, in a lot of ways, I mean, one of the differences, I think, between Edison and Tesla is that, I mean, Tesla kind of falls for his own myth. He really does think that only he can do it. Edison, yeah. you know, whatever he, however he might portray himself in public, knows perfectly well that the business of invention is a collective business. You know, so he has a laboratory full of you know, keen young men doing the work of invention for him. Tesla, on the other hand, is a loner. He wants to do it all himself. And he tries very hard to keep it all to himself. And it's a very, very seductive image. I mean, I mean Tesla plays yeah. it. Whilst he's out in Colorado Springs carrying out you know, various experiments before you know, setting up the Westinghouse Laboratory, he suggests that he's received messages from Mars, for example. Um, okay. Mars is very much in the news at the end of the 1890s. You know, this is why H.G. Wells has has his Martians coming along. You know, Percival Lowell has you know, is, is supposedly mapping the canals on Mars. Everybody thinks that Mars is inhabited. So Tesla yeah. says, yeah, I've received messages from them. And yeah, if you give me enough money to build the build my wireless technology, I'll be able to communicate with Mars. So he keeps you know, Of course. He's he's yeah, he's selling you know, he's he's selling these fantastic notions. And you know, even after the Wardenclyffe Tower is torn down, even after he's living in the cheaper hotel, I mean he's still selling that dream of an, ele- of an electrical future that he could only come at by giving Tesla large amounts of money, mm. essentially. I, I mean, suppose it doesn't, it doesn't do that uh, kind of journey to, journey to legend any harm by banging on about creating death rays and ending wars as well, does it? Uh, well, no. I mean, it's, I, mean, te- I, mean, Tesla's, I mean, Tesla knew what he was doing. So he's created that you know, he's created this image of the kind of lone iconoclastic you know, rule breaking genius for himself. Then he dies, and then the following Damn. year, John O'Neill you know, publishes *Prodigal Genius*, kind of solidifying that you know, that you know, that narrative. And I think, I mean, that in all sorts of ways, yeah, you know, the kind of Tesla Edison myth, you know, Tesla, the kind of free spirit. Edison, the corporate guy, works very nicely with contemporary kind of ambivalences about technology, invention, capitalism, huge corporate interests, and so on. With Tesla obviously being the good guy, he was going to give us free energy. Spoiler alert, he wasn't. (laughs) He's not going to get, make money by giving away free energy. No, no, he was going. He was going to make money out of this, but yeah, that's yeah, that's the myth. Yeah, Tesla, free spirit, free energy, Edison, corporate guy. So yeah, yeah. Guess who the Silicon Valley tech bros want to be like? Yeah, they want to be like that iconoclast who breaks all the rules, who does things differently. Yeah, who can do these things single-handedly, and yeah, we can see that and some of the consequences of that going on even as we yeah. speak in in all sorts of ways but yeah i mean i mean i think i mean i think tesla made himself for these sorts of you know, for, 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 for these kind of fantasies which makes them very hard to break i mean i yeah. i know that nothing that i say on this podcast <laughs> is going to make a blind bit of difference <laughs> to the way that tesla is understood by most people 
Yeah, we've got an episode coming up on moon landing wankers, so you know you, you will not be alone there. <laughs> if I can just ask, then you mentioned polyphase motors. I know. I mean, what what do we have in the world today that we can thank Tesla for? Inventing the polyphase motor really was a crucial yeah. step. Most motors during the 1880s worked on direct current. You could get them to work on AC, but you had to turn the AC into direct. I mean, it was, it, 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 it was a complicated and messy business. Yeah. So having a motor that worked directly from AC was a huge selling point. It was something that, you know, you know, with, you know, with you know, having bought that patent from Tesla, Westinghouse could go to industrialists and say, yes, you can use my AC. You can run your machinery off my system because look we have this so yes i mean it, it was a, it was a crucial component of putting that kind of alternating current universe if you like together and you know, that was and is still very important mm. and he gave us that image of the inventor as well and we still very often think of inventors in that kind of teslian mode um, as yes, kind large, of, large hats and borderline insane. Uh, yeah, kind of weirdo, weirdo outsiders. Whether that's a good thing, he said dubiously, or a bad <laughs> thing, is is moot. But I mean, we owe that image of invention, and if you like, you know, the image of who makes our futures for us, who should we entrust our futures to, you know, to that kind of image that Tesla and his many, many promoters in the American press in particular you know, made during, during the 1890s. And that's still a deeply influential image. Lovely. So to wrap things up, um, you have a new book out that's just launched recently, How the Victorians Took Us to the Moon. Can you tell us anything about it and some of the surprising discoveries that the reader might be able to find inside it? Absolutely. One of the things that I find myself thinking about more and more recently over the last few years, and I've kind of alluded it, alluded mm-hmm. to it just now, is, if you like, the history of the future. How have people in the past thought about their future? And what's the relationship between the way people in the past thought about their future and the way that we think about our futures now? So how the Victorians took us to the moon. I start, because I like to think that I start with a very nice little kind of piece of fantasy. Imagining a Victorian rocket taking off to the moon in, well, I chose 1909. Well, 1909 deliberately, so that's 60 years before the actual um, Apollo program. And I started it off like that because one of the key points I want to make in how the Victorians took us to the moon, was that the Victorians invented a new way of thinking about the future, and it's the way that we think about the future now. Crudely speaking, if you go back much beyond, earlier than the 19th century, you go back to the 18th century, you ask somebody what the future's going to be like. Uh, it's going to be more or less the same as the present. You know, that's the way things are. You know, there'll be a different king on the throne. Little did they know it's actually going to be a queen, but there we go. But other than that, things are going to be much the same. If you ask somebody in the middle of the 19th century, what's it, what's it going to be like in 100 years? 
this can be a very different answer. The answers are mainly going to involve electricity and flying machines. Since, I mean, if you look at kind of Victorian imaginings of the future, it is largely made up out of electricity and flying machines. But yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's the notion of, of the future is somewhere different. It's not going to be the same as the present. And the way you get to this new future is through science and technology. So around about the beginning of the Victorian period, science is, if you like, refashioned. It's remade. It's remodeled. And it's remodeled in part you know, to make it into a fit vehicle for taking us into the future as the Victorians imagine it. So things like the telegraph you know, that we've already discussed, you know, this hugely kind of groundbreaking technology. Charles Babbage's calculating engines, you know, which, of course yeah. were ne- you know, which of course were never actually built. But I mean, just that kind of fantasy, if you like, that it was possible you know, to use Babbage's language, you know, to calculate by steam that in just the same way that you know, new factory machines at the beginning of the 19th century you know, were replacing human physical labor, you could make a machine that replaced human mental labor as well. Mm. You know, so you, know, you could make weavers out of work with automatic looms. Well, you can make the people that they call computers in the 1830s, i.e. young men who did maths, you could put them out of yeah. work as well because you, you, you could make these machines. They would, they would do that for you. And you know, that's an important part then of kind of Victorian fascination with, well, what's the future going to be like for the rest of the 19th century? And you get these fantastic scientific romances about you know, automatic men, automatic women very often as a kind of idealized perfect women who are who are machines constant fantasies and mm. efforts to to build build flying machines one of the pictures my in fact my favorite picture in the book i think is this image of the aerial steam carriage flying over the nile with the pyramids in the background now of course the aerial steam carriage was never actually built but it was patented you know, they were trying to build it, and you know, they had these trade cards as a way of displaying, <laughs> look, this is what it's going to be like if you, if you give us the money to build this machine. And, of course, you know, that kind of having it flying over the Nile is a nice reminder that a lot of this kind of business of science and technology in the 19th century is entirely bound up with the business of empire. You know, it's a kind of imperial future. Yeah. that these guys are aiming at in all sorts of ways. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's what the book is about. And ending up really with the thought that we still, you know, we still think of the future. We still think about how the future is made, where it's going, who makes it, who owns it, in a way that's kind of still closely related to the way that the Victorians did it. And that carries with it certain implications and assumptions about, well, who inventors are, who scientists are. And their assumptions and implications that I think that as we kind of look towards managing what is clearly going to be a very precarious future for humankind over the next few decades, that maybe kind of trying to break out of that sort of Victorian way of imagining futures and 
thinking up you know, better, more equitable ways of thinking about the future is something that we should be trying to do. Well, thank you very much, Ewan. Thank you very much. That has shone an impressive light, pun intended, on on an area that can be as much myth as it is showmanship, glitz and glamour. And it's been absolutely fascinating for me because I I know very little about the history of science and I know very little about the Victorians. So to, to combine the two, it's been absolutely fascinating. Like I say, I, I love the book. So th- thank you very much for bringing you know, 10,000 volts of rage to our podcast. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. An Do you feel better? <laughs> Very much so. Well, if you would like to know more, then you can and should purchase Ewan's many books. How Victorians Took Us to the Moon came out early November, uh, and we will uh, have a link to that in the History Rage bookshop, along with the rest of Ewan's work as well. Uh, but once again, Ewan, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And we would love you to join the angry mob on Patreon as this really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes three months in advance, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and of course the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, from all of us here at History Rage, stay angry. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you.